Good morning. Good morning everyone and welcome once again to dive deep into the ninth chapter. <laughs> so let's sit quietly for a few minutes to gather our minds, settle our minds and body. Bringing our awareness in the present moment, focusing on breath as we will be, breathing naturally, where you just let the breathing take place on its own, however it requires to be, without trying to regulate it or control it. while at the same time we try to stay aware of the breath, feeling the sensations, at the same time not being judgmental about them, just let them be however it requires to be, it happens to be, just be. aware of it non-judgmentally. And in staying aware of it, try to do so alertly, attentively, ardently, with a sense of delight in it. Next, we will say the homage to Manjushri, but before we do that, let's take time in cultivating our merit field. 
However, you feel comfortable. But in line with the homage of praise to Manjushri that we are doing, it would be good to visualize Manjushri in the space above us, facing oneself. Trying to come up with as clear a sense of his presence as possible. And try to think of him as the personification of the wisdom of all the Buddhas. Of course, integrated with all the other qualities, full blossoming. For the sake of convenience in relating to this principle of perfect wisdom, embedded in all the qualities of perfection, we invoke the presence of Manjushri. Think of the qualities of the Buddha. And think of their own place of wisdom. In the midst of those qualities, both in terms of their causal processes of generating them, developing them, eventually bringing to full awakening, What was the complementary relationship between those qualities, broadly speaking, spoken of as method aspect and the wisdom aspect, their respective unique contributions to the journey leading to the awakening, and particularly think of the role plays wisdom. In this respect, one can recall excerpts from different recitations that we do after lunch, where a specific unique role of wisdom is spelled out in from different ways. And through this generated sense of the unique role in this of wisdom and be enthused to deter, enthused to generate them. Wisdom of various levels, various shades, ultimately culminating into the wisdom of understanding, the ultimate reality, in the subtlest form as presented by Prasakya Madhamikas and carried all the way through to full awakening.
big wise here in thinking of fellow sentient beings surrounding us, joining us in this. Invocation and homage to Vipmanjushri, as well as joining us in the session. Think of our basic commonalities that we share with all sentient beings irrespective. That giving us a sense once again, connecting us to our basic sameness, generating a sense of strong affinity, inescapable. Connection and sameness, based on which we have our differences, but those are all embedded in this. Same basic humanity. How we also share in our confusion, fears, hopes, worries, ups and downs that we go through, both in one lifetime and over lifetimes. How, despite our efforts that we may have made, Sporadically, this one lifetime of the other, we will lose the strength of the virtues under the force of afflictions in general, more particularly wrong view, hatred, strong doubts, and thus end up not getting anywhere. Besides that, the lack of wisdom. We pay a high price in lacking the wisdom, understanding full awake, understanding the ultimate import of reality. How in the absence of which all of the other practices just only go so far and do not take us outside of the bondage. Samsara, let alone letting us into the direction of, into the assured direction of full awakening. Thinking along these lines generate a sense of affinity with fellow sentient beings growing into empathy, into love and compassion into this strong sense of resolve that, yes, I should shoulder the responsibility in doing something given my special privilege that I have in this lifetime, together with the fortune of meeting with the Dharma and having this great luck in having interest in it and making some headway in it. So with these cultivations, both going towards sentient beings as well as towards the merit wills, let's say this homage together. Let's sit for a while holding this bodhicitta aspiration in our mind, that the whole of our mental state be 
infused by this spirit of compassion-driven desperation to attain full awakening for the sake of all sentient beings. By showing art with hows and whys behind them, By way of strengthening this motivation for this session and beyond, when I said showing this aspiration up with the wise and house for whom, etc., behind it, there is no way we can miss the role of wisdom of understanding. Ultimate reality, not just wisdom, understanding ultimate reality. Wisdom developed from the basis of this correct understanding into some kind of a completely integrated, internalized wisdom that informs just about everything we would engage in through our three doors from that point onward. The reason for that is because our sufferings, our own death of all the rest of the sentient beings. They are all rooted in ignorance. Of course, mediated by afflictions, karma induced by them, they in turn are generated by the afflictions, the afflictions in turn are sustained by, fed by, Nothing but ignorance. Among all the qualities that need to develop, that we need to develop to progress on the path, ultimately it boils down to wisdom, a strong, robust, healthy, correct, well-grounded, well-informed wisdom. It takes for such a wisdom to ultimately address the ignorance, expose it in the first place, then eventually weaken it, and completely uproot it, replace it. Totally take it out of our mental continuum and replace it with never-living, never-living wisdom grounded in reality integrated by all other qualities of mental aspect practices.
the cultivation of such wisdom is not that easy coming. One, because just the opposite force of it in the form of self-grasping and all of its proteges, proteges in the form of afflictions is something that we have so habituated all along. They have been so much made part of us that we, get, we have hard time difficult we have hard time imagining even without them. To that extent, they have made inroad into our thinking, habits, actions, just about everything, all of our personality, and thus the effort to cleanse that, take that out of our system, if you will, must be persistent one. Thorough, persistent. On top of that, the ultimate reality, to understand it in its full dimension, is not easy. We have several ways of mistaking it and settling for a lesser understanding. There are several ways by which we could mistake it for others. Some so are so difficult, the subtlest one is so difficult for us to even believe in it. And thus our doubt comes in the way. Our sense of how could that be comes in the way. That just doesn't make sense comes in the way. That's how we, even if we care to pursue it, we are met with all these stumbling blocks that we need to persist in cutting through. Yet, without this wisdom, none of our efforts, even if successful in making them, would get us any further away from samsara. It would be merely bouncing up and down most of the time under the influence of the afflictions and the ignorance, deep-seated, deep-integrated ignorance. We will be spending most of the time in the lower realms, unfortunate realms of existence, and once we get there, it's all hell its own complications, entanglements, which get us deeper and deeper and deeper. Yet this time, if we want, we can make a difference. This is an opportunity to make a break. Particularly thinking of fellow sentient beings, and, and among them, more particularly those currently in the lower realms of existence. We cannot afford to merely squander away this opportunity. If we really want to be worthy of our own applause, worthy of our own rejoicement, our appreciation, we must make effort in not letting ourselves down in letting this golden opportunity just slip by. 
and therefore missing missing out on a great opportunity to not only make a difference in one's prospects going forward, but that of all mother's sentient beings. Let's now determine and make the motivation, make the most of this session and beyond in making progress on all the rest of our practices, particularly that of wisdom. With every passing day, making inching closer and closer to getting rid of all doubts, all misunderstandings, eventually land on a correct understanding. And then once we get that, then we can build on that basis. Let's all make this motivation. Let's once again contextualize what we are dealing with here. Oh, remember the whole text, the whole subject, the whole chapter began with saying the sage told, taught all these branches of teachings for the sake of the wisdom. Therefore, those who wish to pacify the true sufferings that of, that of self and others should generate the wisdom. So here, this is Shantideva, uh, teaching on the perfections of the Bodhisattvas, and having built the momentum for this moment of eventually taking up wisdom. Because ultimately it all boils down to the wisdom in really making it possible to realize the aspiration of Bodhicitta. So he puts it in the context of basic, deep, without doubt, he's presenting the Prasankika Madhyamika perspective here. In the writings of Tsongkhapa, we will come across how Tsongkhapa puts Shantideva, Chandrakirti, and Buddha Padita together as masters who, who hold and carry the lineage, unmistaken lineage of Nagarjuna and uh, his disciple Aradeva's understanding of the wisdom. So he's among those masters in terms of his unmistaken, correct grasp of Nagarjuna's intent, and that in turn being Buddha's final intent. And he's basically speaking of not just any kind of wisdom, but rather the wisdom understanding correctly and mistakenly the ultimate nature of reality as understood at the Prasangika Madhyamika level, which is the furthest level, the most correct and furthest level. And here, one thing in particular is 
basically in general we can think of buddhism with this buddhism buddhism has this uh this understanding that our problems uh, one way or the other uh, happen or begin from seeing things in a much uh, more concretized form being uptight uh, being in the uptight concretized reified form without defining it fully we can just generally say safely that buddhism basically aims at deconstructing such uh, any 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 kind of any tendency to concretize reify things be that particularly yourself in how you see yourself and through that how you see others in the same light and then relations things in between and the rest of the phenomena when we begin to see everything is in fluid everything is in fluid and dynamic ever changing uh, yet at the same time we have this tendency of seeing them in the light of being concrete stable unchanging sometimes we even have this understanding that we are the only one who is moving in the midst of everything static <laughs> everything is given there the road is there the house is there everything got to be where we think it should be and we are the only one going through it <laughs> and then in the course of doing so we kind of see ourselves into moments of concrete stable things right moving from one moving from one moment to the other nonetheless but still staying in a very unfluid concrete sense so basically buddhism is pointing at that tendency of ours loosen up a little bit take it easy <laughs> try to take things easy right and not by denying their reality but by uh, upholding their reality but not sliding into this extra layer of concretizing them or almost petrifying them almost reifying them yeah so that is being warned up against and and that is done in several layers beginning with how you look at yourself and that's this concept of no self comes not not that it means completely denying selfhood completely denying personhood but it denies the kind of projection that we put on it bring onto it seeing it as something very something very uh dramatically different from aggregates in in sharing in 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 having totally uh dramatically opposite characteristics than our aggregates like aggregates are impermanent self is permanent aggregates are uh de dependent in self is independent aggregates has parts the self is monolithic like that so we start from that kind of a, a, a dramatic uh, departure from reality uh, when we think of ourselves and that is an excessive uh, way of thinking and then even when we get rid of that oh, we have even even when we think that yes we we kind of 
train ourselves in thinking that, yes, I am not that dramatically different in my characteristics with regard to my aggregates. Aggregates are impermanent, I too, and impermanent aggregates are dependent, I too, and dependent aggregates have parts, I too have parts, both temporarily, uh, spatially, whatnot. Both temporarily, spatially, and there is another way of having parts, the parts of being, the parts of pervasion, the parts of pervasion. We'll just leave it there. <laughs> we could have parts, both in, not just both, in three ways, in terms of our pervasion, and how things pervade. And to that extent, it would have its parts, like pervading that. Then there would be the part of temporality of how we could have sequences, temporal sequences. And then we could have spatial, right? Spatial techniques, similar, somewhat similar to pervasion, but not quite the same because one concept is applicable to other things that uh, the concept of speciality may not be fit to, fit to be applied. Anyway, so both parts, both being person and aggregates have parts, but still we, we insist on seeing the being, the person, the I, as having a notch beyond, above and beyond aggregates. <laughs> seeing that, oh, when it comes to identifying it, it aggregates have to rely, rely on something else to be to identify it. But when it comes to identifying or thinking of the concept or the thinking of I, it doesn't need to rely on the, uh, identifying this, the, the, the aggregates like that. So we kind of give some some notch mm -hmm. above and beyond aggregates and then again concretize it. And then further down we go into seeing that even if we th we see things, everything in fluid, in in being dependent and and uh, yeah, dependently related, whatnot. But then, in terms of, but in, but then, uh, within that concept of things being dependent, we tend to then again. Uh, uh, impose or project some kind of a uh, some kind of a concrete identity uh, well we accept that things are dependent and thus they have their own different roles different capabilities given uh, functions whatnot but while accepting that they have these functions dependent on things we kind of then again concretize at them along those functions, along those unique characteristics, and see them to be almost like a, a self-enclosed identity, uniqueness, uh, and, and thus, through that lens of concretizing their identities, we begin to, we tend to uh, uh, explain the interrelationships. So in the even while we speak, in in a way we are speaking in a contradictory way, contradictory form, contradictory sense, by on the one hand accepting that they are dependent, but at the same time dependently, but at the same time dependent in a very, uh, what you call, cut out uh, way, with no, what you call, fluid, 
interface with other other phenomena, let alone mind. So anyway, the, there are all those tendencies of concretizing things in us. Uh, although in the text it is kind of these these levels of concretization are allocated to this school, this school, in this school, as though those are out there. But all of those schools are within us. <laughs> we kind of take switch. Uh, we take we we switch sides uh, depending on. Uh, how comfortable we feel at one point with this kind of understanding with that of the other and how how much refined understanding we have yet to gain of the other one we kind of tend to uh, move around with those and nonetheless always being caught in one form of uh, notion of reification or the other but some are very subtle so that's 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 a general idea about Buddhism. So one has to see to what extent that is true. <laughs> one may see something to be bad and you begin to see it to be bad, never changing bad. That's 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 the way of concretizing it. A bad some bad situation to which I have nothing to contribute to. I have nothing to do with others are so we kind of concretize it and I think uh, reify it in so many uh, what do you call uh, there are so many uh, crafty, creepy, creepy ways. So, the journey to the the journey to breaking through these uh, mistaken, mm. unhealthy, uh, suffering, contributing tendencies within us. Uh, has to begin somewhere, right? And uh, and and it has to then eventually come to a very thorough uh, thorough job on that, which would be when we understand the prasangika matamikas and take on how things exist, which is on one on one way it looks like going to, to an extreme. Uh, by uh, by denying any amount of objectivity whatsoever, although yeah, objectivity whatsoever, but at the same time claiming that it doesn't damage, it doesn't bring any dent to the infallibility of dependent origination. So to be accommodate the two together, it's where the most difficulty is. Yet at the same time. That's the claim by them, and that they feel very comfortable in making the claim for that. So we have to struggle to get there, uh, where on the one hand we do not have to uh, give in to accepting any kind of objectivity, whatever it means, <laughs> but at the same time being so sure and comfortable uh, in accommodating not just dependent origination, but the infallibility of it. Infallibility of the causes and conditions, the relationship between causes and conditions, the infallibility of things being dependently and relatedly existing, in the midst of which the whole play, the whole sport, the whole play uh, of dependent origination is situated 
on the basis that things lack, utterly lack any intrinsic objective reality of their own. And that's what allows for robust, infallible interface of things, namely dependent origination in a very, very, uh, what do you call, unconstrained, robust way. But this understanding at that at the person Gigamadamika level is not that easy, and thus the author proposes a mechanism or proposes or kind of leads us, walks us through a process by which we could gradually, slowly but gradually refine our understanding and kind of in a way shore up our understanding from possible missteps by showing this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Not by just claiming that this is wrong, what do you call arbitrarily, but kind of presenting the reason behind that. So in this respect, the understanding of the true truths is very, very crucial. There's something called true truths. Uh, as I have always been complaining, um, but by calling them true truths seems to be, at least in the outset, giving wrong perception. Uh, anyway, when we speak of true truths, it's speaking not just of truth as a quality, but we are speaking of truths as, 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 uh, what do you call, as a collection of phenomena. The entire phenomena, the entire reality can be divided up into what is called true truths. Truth not as a quality, but truths as, as, as in identifying two divisions, two classifications of phenomena. One called conventional truth, the other called ultimate truth. Again, the presentation of these two truths is also proceeded in a very skillful, gradual way in the Buddhist text by presenting a rough take, rough course take on it, and finally refining it to the level of understanding presented in the Prasangika Mathemikas. That's the reason why there is this distinct this difference in the takes of what constitutes a conventional truth, what constitutes ultimate truth. So at some points they would seem like differences on two different things, but eventually those differences kind of merge on one particular thing and have a difference in their take. That's where the actual effort in sorting through it takes place, in kind of really proving the one wrong, the other right, and the hows and whys of this, eventually leading to a mutually beneficial understanding that is closer to the reality and has very much to do with our uh, Prospect of joy and happiness and relieving from suffering because it addresses basically our own mistaken take of it that lies at the very root of all these uh, all these outgrowths in us in our mental states, particularly in the form of afflictions. That's why there's this division. There's this talk about the common people and the yogis. And then, although the differences between these schools can be uh, myriad and can span from so many things, but what 
is being focused here is difference in re in relation to how they think things phenomena exist just on that particular topic that's the main yeah that's the relevant topic to focus on in terms of dealing in terms of sorting through those differences uh, not just about anything because that means that would take us completely off of 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 the track So, uh, doing as it does in kind of really sorting out this difference in terms of how things exist, then it 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 shows us how how uh, the journey should look like, uh, depending on where we may be starting from. Uh, most possibly. Or in a taken in a safer way, it takes into account that maybe we start out with outright rejection of anything, any such thing as a lack of inherent existence, and starting with this this uh, outright acceptance and belief that things have their own intrinsic nature, intrinsic identity of their own. To so much so that they think that every every physical thing can be broken down to eventually a self-sustaining, indivisible, indivisible building block. Be that in the case of the material things, or in the case of the consciousness, in the case of non-material, temporal phenomena such as our mental states, they say that they can be broken down to they can be. They are broken down to their parts eventually to an indivisible monolithic uh if we will indivisible uh what do you call subtle state of mind which is no more further divisible in terms of temporal parts yet at the same time serves as the very foundation by which things could uh, rise things could be built on Temporal parts could be added to make into a continuum. A big part can be there with many parts, but nonetheless, eventually, uh, boiling down to an individual. So all so so when we speak of things being indivisible and eventually, really kind of findable, findable, palpable in that sense, we are basically speaking that speaking of. A very concrete uh, allowance that things has, things have intrinsic identity of their own. So, from a modern scientific or philosophical parlance, such stance, such philosophy, or such uh, adherence would amount to what they call dualism. But not just dualism in a naive sense, but dualism in the in the real in the real sense that yes, all physical things can be broken down eventually to an, an indivisible building block. All non-physical consciousness can be broken down to an indivisible uh, instance, temporal instance of the consciousness out there, as serving as the cause, as as the building block. So that's what is being refuted, and then. Because that way of that way of seeing things 
seeing how things exist really really brings in all force into our belief that things have intrinsic objective outward intrinsic characteristics of their own to begin with 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 nothing on our part having any 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 say over them and then that's fine a kind of uh, slightly uh, kind of uh, questioned and eventually uh, this second uh, position of the Chitamatras is presented where he says where it completely rules out any such thing as any such thing as uh, what do you call indivisible parts, indivisible uh, building block, be that of consciousness or that of materials, completely uh, uh, refutes that. But at the same time, says that the mind has to have, mind has got to have a, have a special way, mode of existence that is more uh, what do you call objective, objective in the sense that has a more substance, more. Uh, Cut more substance into it that that and that everything everything is uh, what you call in the words of the Chitamatras, everything is a mere appearance uh, to the consciousness, mere appearance to the consciousness. It's an idealistic uh, way of looking at things, where it uh, what you call leans back leans back on consciousness as being the more uh, substantial. I mean, it would look, it would sound ironic to kind of bring substantiality to the realm of consciousness, yet at the same time it says that everything is mere appearance with consciousness, nothing beyond that. Uh, so there is no external reality outside with consciousness. But when it comes to consciousness itself, it is everything. It is responsible for everything, and things are mere appearances to it. So that's one way of kind of shaking our uh, unquestioned, uh, taken for granted assumption that things have got to things got to have some kind of a intrinsic and intrinsic substantial existence of their own by bringing the shift. Going to another, to, to other, to one extreme of seeing everything is mind, and kind of at least succeeding or managing to to kind of deconstruct the apparent substantiality of the material things. But then, from a Buddhist perspective, that is uh, an extreme which would go only so far in dealing with the afflictions, which are the sources of sufferings, when it comes to external things, but not about internal qualities. One would, again, one would instead be very much uh, tended to hold so tightly about our internal world by seeing them to be very, in, in what you call, concrete, uh, in, in concrete, reified terms. And then, when this understanding is further, the whole, the project, the whole uh, reason behind the whole, uh, what do you call it? the whole mm, motivation behind this project is to uh, keep on deconstructing uh, our sense of 
in the sense of things being concrete in one way or the other. And that's why that's how it's reflecting these shifts uh, in, try, in trying which would be the uh, right way of understanding, which would be the most effective way of understanding uh, the reality, so that it not only would reflect the reality, but also have the impact of carrying us along with the reality and thus no friction and thus not giving rise to any of the afflictions within us. So in an attempt to do that, it falls into that, it takes us into that extreme uh, understanding. At least it's almost like presenting us with that kind of understanding, which in many of us, we may see that to be naturally what we align ourselves to. And then it brings this next understanding of how, irrespective of whether it's a physical thing or a non-physical consciousness, they both share the same, same quality of being not substantial in the ultimate sense, yet at the same time uh, completely, what do you call, viable in conventional terms in their functionality, their operationality. So it brings that shift from the extreme to the middle, saying, yes, both consciousness and things are same in 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 being a lack of certain amount of substantiality, yet at the same time they are also same in sharing the equal level of conventionality, conventional truth about them. But at the same time, failing to go to the extreme, not to the to the to the furthest end of uh, negating any any negating the last vestiges of objectivity. So that's how they maintain. So basically, this is coming to the Sotantrika Madhamikas saying things are fifty-fifty. They are fifty percent contributed by the mind, fifty percent from their own unique characteristics. The two combined makes them what they are, viable in the way they are, you know, daily life. So we can move, we can take it up to that point, but the Prasangika Madhimikas are still not satisfied. They say, no, that's not enough. That will only go so far in dealing with the afflictions, because it doesn't reach the very, uh, very the very, subtlest ignorance. So long as we leave even the slightest uh, tinge or slightest degree of any objectivity, then that would be enough of a breeding ground for generating afflictions, and that in turn will generate karma, that will in turn impel suffering. So that is the whole project about But then, as we can see in stanza, in stanza four, no, stanza, yeah, second half of stanza four and stanza five, where we left last time. Did we? I think, oh yeah, yeah. So we'll briefly touch on that. There, the Buddhist realists, although for the sake of convenience in discussing about it, we realist, non-realist, mind only, right? And the and the 
What was the term? Essence, essencelessness? What's the term for Those proponents, uh, those proponents of things having no, pardon? Yeah, entitylessness. That's the whole, whole of Mademika. Uh, things, things do not have an intrinsic entity of their own, entitylessness. But that still is not uh, complete enough in our understanding of how things exist in reality with not the slightest tinge of any entity, any inheritance. So, as, as, as those speaking to us as practitioners who care to understand and cultivate wisdom, uh, the, tech, the, the, the text is bringing up this, this, this very possible um, uh, rebellious mind in us saying, what are you talking about? Things have got to, things got to have some kind of identity of their own, objective identity of their own out there with their characteristics based on which they are capable of functioning the way they do, not just anything that you level on them, they become it. That's not the way things are. Rather, things seem to assert their own identity and stand their ground and at the same time deliver their function. And it, it doesn't look like it's all dependent on how we project and how we level on them. So. So, so this, uh, so this voice of the rebels is presented in very, in in very bold terms, saying, one, what you are speaking of in terms of essencelessness or thing, things having in, lacking inherent existence is uh, uh, total baloney. Another that even if this were to be true, uh, it would be ir irrelevant. Even if there were to be something called things being inherent, ex things lacking inherent existence, uh, it would be very difficult to substantiate it through reasoning. It would be very different, difficult to convince others, convince oneself, substantiate it with, with reasoning. Because uh, in the light of things lacking inherent existence, it's almost like saying uh, this, this nothing that will matter. You can do just about anything you do and no, not follow any, any particular direction and whatnot, because that's not going to lead us to anything since things are lacking in inherent existence, which is equal to saying things do not exist, or things have no, no identity of their own and thus have uh, no ground to make to, yeah, no ground to make any difference uh, with others and no ground to be affected by others. So here, uh, in that respect, the last two lines of the fourth stanza, it's saying that no, it is not that the lack of inherent existence or the emptiness can, is, is, is not an existence, is not a phenomena. Nor is it true that it cannot be substantiated by reasonings and by uh, evidences. Saying that we don't have to go too far in 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 in, in 
too far-fetched in thinking of examples. Rather, some examples such as illusion, magical illusion, reflections in the mirror, etc., etc., mirage, mirage, and such examples of uh, such examples that that both of the camps. Uh, one that is asserting uh, lack of inherent existence, the other asserting that things got to be inherently existent. Both these camps accept these examples. We can start from there and 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 then and then sit at the table and have discussion. Slowly I can make the the person mathematics saying that I can uh, convince you of what I'm speaking. So by means of examples accepted by both the ex both parties, what I'm speaking of as emptiness can be established. Then the then the reaction to that is saying even allowing that this this so-called emptiness of inherent existence is true, and it can also be established through reasonings or whatnot. But given that, but but. If this, given that this is true, that things lack inherent existence and things are empty of inherent existence, then it doesn't make sense that practicing this way would lead to this. Engaging in generosity and perfection practices would lead to full awakening. Because there wouldn't be the act of generosity, because things lack inherent existence. So this all reflects our misunderstanding of what, how, what, the person Madhyamikas bring to the table is misunderstood, and we project our own misunderstanding of the things. So they are saying the same thing. Even allowing that lack of inherent existence, the so-called emptiness is true, and it can be even proven and, and established through reasonings. But if, it's, if, if that is so, that, that means everything lacks inherent existence, and that is equal to things being non-existent at all, or at least not making any difference at all. That means the whole, the whole teaching about engaging in six perfections leading to full awakening uh, seems to fall apart. To which the re to which the response is in the in the next line, unanalyzed. The practitioners engage in trainings for the sake of the result. This needs to be unpacked, unanalyzed. It's almost it's not saying when you analyze nothing is there. When you unanalyze everything is there. In a way, it is, but it is not that easy. It is not that, not that uh, simple. It's saying it's, it, this is bringing us uh, into some understanding of in, in, into the minds of the Prasangika Madhyamikas in what they present, in what they, uh, uh, in what they are uh, saying when they think, say that. Things are inherent. Uh, things lack inherent existence. It's saying that the functionality, the functionality of everything, things mattering, things being functional and matter, matter, is on the basis, is on the basis of mere dependency, on the basis of mere, mere interface of things, with nothing that withstands analysis that withstands search upon analysis. Nothing will stand. Even on a conventional level, I was earlier saying conventional level, even on conventional level you cannot find. There we can speak of 
conventional level on two gross ways. Conventional in the sense that if we agree that this is a thermos, this is a, a singing ball, etc., this is a table, what not. If we ac accept that, and we are satisfied with that, and we and we go by that, saying yes, I am here at the table, like that, and not go further into searching for a table, then we would all find table, and it would all be fine in terms of its functionality. But if we search further and look table in the table, we will not find it. So that kind of unfindability is still within the conventional level. It's not that subtle. It's not that difficult to understand. But at the same time, it's quite telling that even on that conventional level, of not being satisfied with the, with, 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 with the mere conventionality of things, if we begin to ask questions, press further and look into the table, look for table into the table, we cannot find it. And that's not that difficult, but at the same time that's the truth with everything. Actually, it, it, it's quite interesting to think of a statement, you cannot find table in table. If you cannot find table in table, then you cannot find table anywhere. If it's not there in the table, then what hope do we have to find it anywhere, anywhere else? But that's the truth. We have to be just be content with the mere, mere convention or mere general acceptance of its being table, rather than push further and try to find table in the table. We will not find it. And that's the case with everything, including our globe, earth, sun, whole universe, everything. I have come across, I think I have shared this, I've come across some current physicists saying everything is space. Everything is space. Not just the space is space, and everything else is concrete, but everything is space. And he's, I think he's speaking of how everything is just built up of parts together with nothing with with nothing withstanding any kind of analysis in the in the, in the more subtle way in not just ultimate not ultimate way not ultimate but even in conventional way if you look for cup in the cup and likewise globe in the globe sun in the sun you cannot find it and that's how everything turns out almost like space in kind of making way for more and more and more other things, but not finding the thing itself. So you were saying that there's no such thing as space being there with everything being in the space, because there's no in and and in, there's not something in and there, in in which something is held, everything is unfindable. <laughs> but that does not, that does not rule out things being functional. Things being there in a very, in a very uh, light, un, unanalyzed, uh, conventional way, things are there and they function. So that's that's what is being said. And unanalyzed, unanalyzed when not an, an, uh, when not analyzed, driven by uh, dissatisfaction of the conventionality. When you do not analyze things, driven by uh, our sense of dissatisfaction with the conventionality, but rather be content with the mere conventionality of things, then we can speak of things being 
cause and effect affecting each other, one leading to the other, the other being possible only when this has been done like that. And that's exactly how practitioners engage in practices like generosity in others with the aim of achieving full awakening. But not questioning what is generosity, but understanding generosity for what it is in a general conventional term and then going by it. And that's how, uh, that's how everything, uh, everything functions. But when we subject them to not just conventional search in the way I spoke of, looking for the thing in the thing, even in that way also you wouldn't find, but even when we subject it to further final analysis, final analysis in the sense, final analysis is a little further than what we spoke of conventional search. In the conventional search, we, we were searching for cup in the cup. Now in the analysis, final analysis, in the conventional sense, we are in the searching in the conventional sense and finding things even when subjected to conventional search would mean searching for the thing. While we see the thing itself in front of us, if when we see the thing in front of us and still are unsatisfied and try to think, try to look for this thing in the thing, we will not find it. That is unfindability on a conventional level. But it is quite telling of what can we expect of it, what may come even deeper if we further probe it. So when, when it says searching it in the analysis, uh, in the final analysis, in the final, in the ultimate sense, even that, even doing that, doing that also we cannot find things. That kind of unfindability is a little more subtle. And there, basically, what one is looking for, driven by unsatisfaction, is one is looking for something to land on, something to, something to land on, something to really kind of pinpoint, to call something as something. Unsatis unwilling to accept that things are, things are rather, rather posited by mind. They have got to have some kind of a objective landing place. <laughs> objective landing place. Unable to, unable to digest, unable to uh, chew uh, the, the claim that things are merely, I could say, I should say, merely labeled by consciousness. Not that things are, that whatever things, that whatever mind labels things become, not to that extent, but whatever things are, are merely, merely labeled. So there's a big difference between these two statements. So that's where mainly these realists mistake this claim of the Prasangang Madhamikas. When they hear that things are merely labeled, they think that whatever you label, things become it. That's a misunderstanding. Things are things do not become whatever you label, but at the very least, whatever they are, they are all what they are by mere or sheer virtue of things being labeled. So nothing, 
we, we can land on nothing when I'm subjected to an ultimate analysis to be able to point that, yes, this is it, this is it. And, and, and that kind of a search should bring us, that kind of a search should bring us to an acceptance that things are subjectively labeled. Yet at the same time, fully functional in the way that they are. So we should be able to situate this unfindability in the ultimate sense, which eventually brings us back to accepting that things are merely labeled, yet at the same time, completely, what do you call, compatible with the fact that things are dependently related and they are infallible in that. So, earlier I got a question on Shantideva's teaching, uh, uh, specifically on this question, on this topic of objectivity. In the last teaching, the refutation of objectivity in the context of Prasangika Madhimika has been mentioned. Could you elaborate on what the meaning of objectivity is in that context? I assume it is a different understanding of objectivity as in natural science empirical methodology. I don't know so much about the natural science. Natural science may be leaning towards objectivity in the way the realists are doing. The things have got to be there. Uh, but when, when you speak of empirical methodology, in their research methodology, when they speak of objectivity, basically they are speaking of objectivity in kind of, in the sense, at least uh, as I understand, in the sense of staying away from your own personal biases, prejudices, like that. That kind of objectivity can be preserved. Of course, to a certain extent. It cannot be complete, what do you call, uh, completely clean from any prejudices. Uh, because it, those are, the, the, so long as the researches are conducted by human beings, and even by even by instruments made by human beings, <laughs> there, there will be some some biases there, biases not intentional uh, and not biases that we would generally associate it with, but they would always be there. But nonetheless, uh, this kind of object objectivity uh, to be maintained to the extent possible in the while undertaking researches, that is understandable. You don't bring your biases, opinions, you just rather, uh, this is exactly what uh, NVC is doing, right? When there is a, a person? Yeah, when there is an observation, they kind of try to make sure that they uh, uh, keep the, the, the prejudices, personal beliefs and understandings, assumptions, presumptions out of it and then just bring the bare facts together, which both the parties should be able to accept, and then go from there, right? So that kind of objectivity is possible. But in the natural science, when they speak of objectivity, I think very often uh, they may even consider bringing mind into the picture, uh, what do you call, uh, an intervention, uh, and rather would, uh, think, take things as being out there, out there, or else objectivity in the sense that, <laughs> to the extent uh, they are responsive to the uh, to the instruments, that extent they can accept the objectivity of them of the of the reality of the things, 
and not just bring in all of our assumptions and beliefs or personal uh, experiences into it. But here in the Madhimika system, it is very radical. The objectivity being denied is very radical. Simply put, it means things may be there, but not from there. If they are not there, but there, they, they have only one way to be existing, from here. Simply put, it is like this. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Form <laughs> is not other than emptiness. Emptiness is not form other than emptiness. This is the first, this is a thermos, because we all agree it to be thermos. So that level of, that level of uh, dependency, we all understand. That almost seems to be semantic in what we call it, right? The term that we all understand is not inherent in it. It's something that has gone beyond, gone from us. What about the actual thermos that we can touch, that can function, that can hold the water? We seem to, we seem to give it, in, we seem to think of that as an exception, of not that subject to labeling, but rather having some kind of an objective reality of its own. In the Buddhist understanding, in the Prasangika Madhimika, there's no difference between the term, thermos, being labeled from us, and the thermos itself being nothing but merely labeled from us. So we have to figure that out. And if we think, persist in our thinking, eventually we'll be able to re really tease apart, tease apart uh, the, the, the misgivings in us and how uh, things actually re exist. Because even and 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 be comfortable in and in accepting that not just the label the label thermos but even the actual content of that label the thermos itself is merely projected merely proje merely labeled let me take back that projection merely labeled merely imputed and it's on that basis of imputation it exists and it functions also but not Everything that we label as thermos becomes thermos. But thermos has become thermos by being merely labeled, and nothing but that is responsible for making it the viable way it is. So, so that's how Prasangika Madhimikas are able to see things illusory like, illusory like, not, but drawing from our general understanding of the metaphor, illusion. So that's why this the first four lines of the fifth stanza says, so says that, that there's no, no contradiction in what I'm saying, in that things lack inherent existence, yet at the same time things are uh, viably functional, functional, operational in the way they are. There's no distinction, no, no contradiction in that, although you may the realist may see so, and he and 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 the and the author pushes further by saying the common world sees functional things. The here common world is the realists, right? Not just general folks, but even those who may be philosophically in uh, philosophically intuited, 
and engaging in philosophical speculations yet uh, land on this land on such excess assumptions that things got to have intrinsic existence through their own philosophical speculation uh, kind of accept advocate that things have um, intrinsic existence and things have got to be so the common world sees functional things but conceives them to be truly existent not like an illusion so con functional things like karmas is like the common thing where the so-called common world and those with the prasangigamadamikas differ in how they understand it they look at the same common thing the common world the realists conceive them to be truly existent conceive them to be inherently existent because of their functionality it is a contradiction from a prasangigamadamikas point of view when the realists say that things are functional dependent and dependent on their cause and they are functional in the way they are yet at the same time they are or they have got to be truly existent truly existent substantially existent objectively existent and they hold on to it very strongly because for them the fact that they are functional seems to be confirming that they have intrinsic individual characteristic individual that they have objective reality they say that the function the thermos is functional in one way not in other ways the function the thermos is functional in one way that others are not capable of others are functional in one way that the thermos is not because they have these identities which has very uh, what do you call grounded uh, reality about them in making difference in in being able to function one way or not the other way just because of that uniqueness should be enough to substantiate that they must have objective reality the prasangika madhyamika they are fully accept yes things are functional in different ways not everything can function in the same way but the very fact that they are functional dependent on their causes is enough to say that they lack any intrinsic existence that they are functional the way they are by mere sheer virtue of their being thoroughly utterly dependent which means which leaves no room for anything to be found upon analysis so it says the common world sees the functional things just as the person gang mathematics do but the difference is they conceive them to be truly existent on the basis of their functionality in the way where and thus fail to see them like an illusion whereas the person gang mathematics accept all of this and on top of that by reason of that say that things must lack inherent existence thoroughly that is this is where the difference is so by exerting our efforts in this then we'll begin to then slide slowly see the subtle points being brought up here we used up the time <laughs> i promised myself to go to stanza 6 but now we have laid a good ground for this and we can go to the next 
I assure you, I will, we will not be stuck there, okay? <laughs> okay, I think.